Wear a mask, save a life. The Alexandria Times is promoting a public service campaign to encourage residents to wear face masks when they are in public to stop the spread of the novel coronavirus in our community. Stay safe, stay healthy. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy, the Alexandria Times podcast. I'm your host, Cody Mellicline, reporter at The Times, and I'm joined by the perfect guest for our first episode in quarantine. Uh, you've probably seen his words in the pages of The Times and other local papers, masks, or heard his save voice during city council Face meetings as of combined late. with continued um, physical as director of the Alexandria Health Department, the novel coronavirus in the Alexandria community. Spearheading Spread the, the word, is response to COVID-19. Uh, I'd like to offer... A remote welcome to the show. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Hearing. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And now it's it's kind of impossible to ignore the COVID-19 pandemic. That's obviously been the majority of what you've been handling as of late. And it's obviously defining so much about our lives right now, even more so yours. But I really, the focus of this show is about the people of Alexandria and their stories. So I'd really like to focus on you and kind of your work leading up to what you've been doing in Alexandria as of late. And I know um, you're not originally from the area, correct? Are you from the Cincinnati area? No, actually, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, really? Okay. And you, so what was, I guess, what was your childhood like in Louisville? What was that like? It sounds like a great town from what I know. It, it was really wonderful. I grew up on a very small farm. It wasn't a working okay. farm, although all of us worked it. And I'm, I'm the youngest of five children. And uh, in, in our farm, we had a garden and everybody had a fruit, everybody had a vegetable, everybody had a tree, and everybody had an animal. And I had the tomatoes, the strawberries, the peach trees, and the cows to take care of. That sounds like, it sounds like a, a lot of responsibility for a kid to have. Well, uh, clearly my, my dad was a role model in that, and he was telling us what to do and, and, and all that. Yeah. Uh, but it also really gave us a good connection to earth, as well as a good connection to family and community, because many of the times what we would do is when we harvested from the garden, uh, it was way more than what the family could eat. So we would actually, as kids, put it in a wheelbarrow and go door to door in this suburb and uh, sell sell the fruits and the vegetables. When did you, so when did you first kind of become interested in, I guess, health, public health? Because I know it's it's one of those things where a lot of kids say they want to be a doctor or want to go into health and they don't end up doing it, but you obviously actually did. So when did that interest first get sparked for you? The interest was really very early on. I would say as early as five, six, seven years old. I have wow. two role models. One uh, is an uncle who was a, a physician, a general practitioner, as well as my great uncle, also a general practitioner. So I always looked up to them. I really appreciated biology and sciences. So I was naturally drawn to that. But also... Uh, another aspect of my growing up was helping to take care of other people. So it was a natural fusion, a natural mix for me, that combination of wanting to help others, of science, and of, of, of working in teams. It sounds kind of like the perfect confluence of a lot of stuff that even at a young age you had been learning about. From what I know, you ended up going to Duke, right? Duke I did. I did my undergraduate work at Duke, okay. uh, and then I uh, and those those were great years. I also spent a semester at the Marine Biology Lab, which was oh, just wow. fantastic. Yeah, it was idyllic. And in terms of waking up and being right there at the at the ocean side, 
Uh, after my undergraduate work, I went back to Louisville, went to the University of Louisville for medical school. And when I completed medical school, I decided, I knew I was going to settle on the East Coast somewhere, and I decided I really wanted to have an experience of the West Coast. And one of my mentors was from California, so he encouraged me to apply, and I went to a family practice program at San Joaquin General Hospital in Stockton, California. Did my internship, and after the internship, I realized I really didn't like hospitals so much. I didn't like hospital work. I was more into prevention, and so I decided to move out of that environment. I came back to Kentucky, and uh, my first job was actually working at Ireland Army Hospital in, um, in Kentucky, in Fort Knox, Kentucky. What was the transition for you like to the West Coast for that brief time that you were there? It was it was a good transition. The people were wonderful. Uh, I really enjoyed the terrain. I loved going over to the Bay Area. Uh, Everything about it was just really nice. I happened to have been there during the big earthquake. And so that's that's one of the things like, wow, you know, it's not often you experience an earthquake that, you know, again, it was devastating for a lot of people, but it was uh, literally earth shaking. You hear a lot of uh I guess I, I hesitate to say horror stories, but you hear you hear a lot of stories about going through medical school and kind of what that experience is like. What was that experience like for you? It's it's obviously not an easy experience. And yeah, it was. There was a lot of challenges, and it's interesting you ask me that because it's very similar to some of the things I'm going through now personally in terms of really having to work extra hours, seven days a week. And mm-hmm. but the, the thing that really helped to draw me through that was other people and also uh, a deep sense of faith. And those two pillars are really um, were tested, but also were very much a part of my life uh, and continue to be a part of my life uh, in terms of approaching things that seem absolutely insurmountable. Uh, but the, the friendships and the teamwork of everybody really helping each other through it was absolutely essential during that period of time. Uh, do you find that those those kind of two pillars are still helping you now? As you said, obviously, you're, it's not one a one-to-one, but do you find those two things are still kind of helping you to cope with the situation as, that you face now? Absolutely. I, I, I can't imagine one without the other, and I can't imagine... Yeah even approaching the work that we're doing, both as a health department, as a city, you know, as a state, as a region, uh, without those pillars. I guess, when did you decide to focus in on public health and preventative medicine specifically? Obviously, that's what, you, that's what you're doing now. It's what you've been doing for a while. But when, when did you decide to kind of hone in on that focus? Right. So when I got out of my internship and I worked at Fort Knox for a year, I actually moved up to uh, the northern part of Connecticut and worked in Massachusetts, a rural practice, a suburban practice, and had some really good experiences there. And the suburban practice, it was a uh, set up such that it was only me and the secretary. So when people came in and at least a third of my patients were under the age of eight years old. So mm-hmm. when it was time to give a shot, there was no nurse to say, go give the shot. I had to learn to give the shots and uh, everything. So it was a, a great experience. I moved to Florida after spending several years in Connecticut, Massachusetts. And in Florida, I was doing what is called in medicine or in the medical practice, locum tenens, which means that I was a temporary doc helping different practices. 
many of the practices I had an ongoing relationship with. So it, it wasn't like I just did three months and left. Instead, I was doing two or three days a week. And I did, for instance, one practice in Palmetto, Florida. I worked there over seven years. In many of the ways I found my next job or jobs was through the nurses in these practices. And there was one, the practice in Palmetto, the nurse said, hey, the, the health department actually has a position open over at the jail. So I went over and, and worked with the incarcerated population. And from there, I learned the magic of how policy can affect or impact an entire population. And instead of seeing one patient at a time, one family at a time, I could actually affect health on a, on a macro level. And a specific example of that is that at that time, when people were being processed into the jail, they were uh, given lye. And essentially what they were given soap that had lye in it. And I asked the jail folks about it and they said, well, that's to present, prevent parasites. And I said, well, it's actually better that we actually treat parasites and you could save a whole lot of money uh, mm -hmm. if you just use a normal soap. And when they switched the soap over, I stopped seeing so many people that were coming in with rashes and dermatitis because the lye was causing irritation to skin. And that's what, it was almost like a light bulb went on. It's like, yeah. wow, I can affect an entire population just by examining root causes of illness and root causes of health. Yeah, it's, ra it's rare to have that kind of light bulb moment in our lives. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and when you get them, you need to pay attention to them. Yeah, for sure. You know, and then uh, also my involvement with the health department there, uh, because I was working, you know, offsite, I was working at the jail. I ended up started work started working over at the health department itself in the STI clinic, the family planning clinic, the cervical cancer um, screening clinic. So I started to really reach out and find out things about what other groups were doing. So I got involved with a homeless uh, coalition, with the domestic violence group, uh, as, as well as the Latino HIV group, and started working in the community. And when the health director at Manatee County Health Department saw what I was doing, is she said, what you need to do is go back and do uh, another residency and complete mm -hmm. one in preventive medicine and public health. And, and that's, what I, that's what I did. Where did you end up going for that? I went to Johns Hopkins uh, School okay. of Public Health. Uh, they have a preventive medicine residency program so that after you've done your clinical year, it's an additional two years, which includes doing a master's of public health as well as practicum rotations. And so that's what, is that what brought you up to this area in the first place? It, it, it is. That's what brought me to you know, this region. And even then, though, when I was at Hopkins, I was thinking of a lot of different possibilities. I looked at mm -hmm. World Health Organization, and did, okay. a, did a rotation there for several months. Uh, I worked with the Indian Health Service in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, but another thing that I did at Hopkins was a food security research and with a colleague wrote a paper that was the first synthesis of the scientific literature on food security in the United States and urban centers in the United States. And at the end of my program, I stayed on an additional year as the chief resident, kept doing that research, but it wasn't finished when my chief residency was done. So I decided really I wanted to stay within the Hopkins sphere mm -hmm. uh, so that I could be driving distance, go by, continue my research. 
And a job, fortunately for me, uh, opened up in Winchester, Virginia, with the Virginia Department of Health. So that's what actually solidified me. Uh, I stayed in Winchester for about a year and a half. It was a wonderful place. But then the job at Alexandria Health Department came open, and I applied for that and have been really uh, blessed to have been able to come on into this job. Yeah. So how long have you been at the Alexandria Health Department? So this August, it will be 10 years that I've been here as the director of Alexandria Health Department. So coming in, so coming into that, to the department, into that position, were you familiar with Alexandria as a city? Did you kind of know any challenges or like specific, I guess, situations you'd be facing specific to the city at least? I I knew it somewhat. Uh, I knew that the city had a great concern and also Mm -hmm. action towards taking care of vulnerable populations. And that's one of the things that I've really liked about it. I talked to the Virginia Department of Health um, Central Office Communications Officer who knows all of the state. And she said, you know, this is going to be a good fit for you because of the way you view what what a health department should do, what a local government should do, that there would be a really good fit. And she was absolutely right. So, you know, when I came on, uh, of course, I met the team, I met people in the city. And um, from from there, it's it's been a lot of work, but a lot of good work in terms of what we've been doing. Yeah. What is it like to, because you are kind of in a unique position in that you are an employee, you're an employee of the state, you're, an, you're a state employee, but you work specifically in a locality and function for that locality. What is it like to kind of be in that very specific situation? It, it, it's interesting because my boss is in Richmond, 90, 95 miles away, but my liaison in the city is right here. And yeah. I'm in constant communication with my deputy city manager liaison. That's a, a continuous relationship. Uh, whereas my boss in Richmond, I might uh, not talk to a lot. But the viewpoint of Virginia Department of Health is when a local health director is, uh, when, the, when the feeling that the local government feels like the health director belongs to them, they feel like at Virginia Department of Health, that's success. And that's truly the situation here because I'm in constant communication, not just with the deputy city manager, but with lots of other department heads and deputy directors mm-hmm. of other departments. Uh, it's just the nature of the work because we don't, in, in public health, we don't look at health as we, we adopt actually the World Health Organization definition of health. It's not just the absence of disease, but it's complete physical, mental, and social well-being. So when you think about complete physical, mental, and social well-being, that involves housing, it involves jobs and economic mm-hmm. opportunities, it involves transportation, it, it involves mental health to the aspect that we don't just treat disease, but we optimize our wellness in all aspects of our lives. Wear a mask, save a life. Face masks combined with continued physical distancing will help prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus in the Alexandria community. Spread the word, not the disease. Coming into the position, having now worked here for for almost a decade, have you found that the that the city is supportive of the the work that you guys do? Because it's it's one of those things I think people have talked a lot more about now that there's a kind of a, a pandemic going on. It's it's these these organizations like the World Health Organization, the CDC, Alexandria Health Department. These are organizations that are that people don't really understand what they do until what they need to do actually happens. Um, right. Do you feel like do you feel like the city has been supportive even when 
before this stuff happened? Absolutely. The city government, as well as the city itself, we went through a two-year process of doing a community health assessment. And in that assessment, we did lots of outreach. We did public health pop-ups. We did um, uh, photo image voicemails where people could send in pictures of, of things that they saw as challenges to health. We did community meetings. We had online surveys. We did paper surveys. And we did these in communities of need as well as mm -hmm. broadly. And the turnout to these meetings was absolutely phenomenal. The support that we got through our steering committee of the community health assessment was just amazing. It was insightful. It was uh, uh, challenging in a good way in that it got all of us to think uh, together in different ways, but also collectively. And we came down to you know, previous community health assessments that I've been involved in. We'd always have really good topics, but they'd be very narrow topics. And the three areas that this community health assessment came up with in leading into our community health improvement plan are big, broad topics that include poverty, mental health, um, and housing. So these are really big topics that you don't necessarily think of a health department that's doing things like environmental health and immunization clinic and tuberculosis clinics. You don't normally think of a health department doing these broad topics, but it's not just the health department doing this. It's actually the entire community. Yeah, and I'd imagine it also, as you said, it, it's not just the community and the residents kind of coming together for that. It's different departments within the city kind of having to come together and actually collaborate on this stuff. Exactly. It's the nonprofit organizations. It's the community organizations. It's, mm -hmm. it's the houses of worship. Uh, it's people that don't really belong to any of those sorts of things, but they want to be involved and they come to the meetings, they give their input. And we're at the stage that we are developing the community health improvement plan. And then, of course, the pandemic health, um, struck and has put that a little bit on pause. Mm -hmm. But I'm also starting to think this could actually be the opportunity to ramp up the community health improvement plan. For sure. And I'm glad you kind of brought this up because obviously it's, it's impossible not to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and everything you guys have been doing um, We've ta actually talked, I think we've, we've, the paper has talked with you in the past about kind of what work you, you guys in the city are doing. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to get a sense of, I guess, on a personal level, how are you coping with the situation? Because for a lot of people, we see the news and we can kind of like at, at some point, like kind of just turn off our brains and like kind of try to just like do what we're doing at home. But this is, this is your work. Like it's kind of impossible for you to ignore everything that's happening. How are you personally kind of coping with the situation and kind of getting through day by day? Well, one of the other other one way is through the two pillars, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a very strong yoga practice that helps me to stay connected. And I practice that every morning and have a, okay. a very long practice, actually. Sometimes I don't get through the whole thing, so I'll do the balance of it in the evening. I have a wonderful team, both the team that is part of our incident command system uh, so that we've actually drawn people from lots of different areas of the health department and they are performing different roles during this pandemic response. And then parallel to that is the work that the city is doing. We are working under a unified command structure in which it's not just us, but it's also the Department of Community and Human Services, and it's uh, Fire and EMS, it's the city manager's office, it's the Office of Communications and Public Information. And then all the departments throughout the city 
are collectively working toward this. Similar to us, in the unified command, there are people that are actually performing work that is way outside their normal role, mm-hmm. but it's integral to the, enti- the, the whole approach. So that's, that's one of the ways I'm coping with this. The other is to recognize that the work that I'm doing and that my department is doing and that everybody in the city is doing, it's actually honorable work. There are a lot of people who are not able to work right now. There's small mm-hmm. business owners that we really feel for. And uh, there's people who are impacted by this, either getting sick or their family members are getting sick. Uh, there's people who have loved ones who are in nursing homes and assisted living facilities that they can't, they can't visit directly with right now. So one of the things that keeps me going is the recognition that there is a lot of suffering, there's a lot of sacrifice that's going on, and anything that I can do, anything that my team can do to help alleviate that suffering, alleviate the, the, the sacrifice that's going on, is one of the main drivers that keeps me going through this. How did things change for you guys in the department from when kind of everything kicked off to now? How's your approach changed to kind of tackling this situation? Sure, I think uh, one of the things, we've actually been working on this since about the middle of January. I think okay. uh, the first week in January is when we started saying, hey, there's something going on because we were getting information from uh, World Health Organization, yeah. Centers for Disease Control, and we started communicating with our long-term care facilities and our other, um, we call them ESF-8 or the Essential Service Functions support functions, and that's the healthcare system, uh, whether it was the private practices, the hospital, the dialysis centers, and advising the community of clinicians in Alexandria about what's going on. The way that we've really changed is that we have reduced, we've even suspended some of our typical services, and we've reallocated everybody um, to work toward this, this pandemic response. And our uh, process is that people are on multiple different teams, teams that we didn't have three months ago, teams that Mm -hmm. do investigation, surveillance, outreach, and education. Uh, We operate instead of five days a week, now we're operating seven days a week uh, because the virus doesn't let up and the cases coming in don't let up. So we cannot let up either. We have to continuously work until we start to see uh, improvement until we start to actually have either uh, a, a safe and effective treatment or a safe and effective vaccine. That has to be a lot to take on for you and your staff. It just it sounds like a really demanding time for everybody involved. It, it is. It is very demanding. Uh, the hours are very long. Uh, there's there's not many days that are less than twelve yeah. hours. But but the reality is, the there are people who are truly making big sacrifices to this. Mm-hmm. The folks that have had to close their business or alter their business dramatically, uh, I recognize that there are many people that wish they could be working like us right now. And it, it takes a lot of work to have the patience to stay home. That's, that's not a small amount of work. It takes a lot of work to help to uh, school your kids. Even though the, the schooling mm-hmm. is done electronically, there's still a greater responsibility on on the parents and the families at this point. What is what is your evaluation of the situation as it stands now in the city? I I would say that the testing actually is still not at the level that we need it to okay. be at. Uh, it has increased 
In other words, there, there's, there, initially there was the bottleneck at the laboratory, but since private laboratories are now doing testing, there's not that bottleneck. The bottleneck now is, with regards to testing, is the complications of doing, or not the complications, but the complexities of doing the testing. Mm -hmm. It requires full PPE, and if it's done within a clinician's office, you actually have to clean down the room and sterilize the room after each test collection. So that's really resource intensive. I believe what is necessary is that we actually increase the amount of testing, and there have been a lot of efforts towards that, both Nova Alexandria Hospital and Neighborhood Health, our federally qualified health center, have been mm -hmm. doing testing on greater scales that is done curbside slash drive-through so mm -hmm. that there's not the complication of having to clean a room afterwards. Um, but really, we're going to need to, as a not just as a city of Alexandria community, but as a society, ramp up our testing markedly. Is it is it even remotely possible at this point to kind of like estimate the, the track for this thing you see a lot of different estimations for like how long how I guess the duration of the outbreak and if there could be a second outbreak is it even remotely possible to estimate that at this point you know it would it would be nothing but speculation I, I can say yeah. one of the things I'm telling people is we need to watch the data and not focus on the date mm -hmm. so it's the data is more important than the date and the data that we're looking at includes which way are the numbers going, not just in the cases, but in the hospitalizations and in the deaths? Uh, what way is the data going with uh, the burden on EMS, the rest of the healthcare system? Uh, we need to really have a market increase in the amount of PPE, the personal protective equipment, for healthcare workers, for fire EMS, for public health, for everybody, uh, for people taking care of residents in group homes, uh, for the long-term care facilities. There's so many different parameters that need to be set before we're mm -hmm. at that stage where we can say things are better. I will say this is going to be a long haul for everybody. And what I mean by a long haul, until we have vaccine in a large percentage of the population, 80% of the population, we're going to be uh, having a lot of challenges that there's not going to be back to normal. There's going to be new normals, if you will. What, what do you feel for residents? What do you feel like is the most important thing for them to keep in mind at the moment? I think the most important things for residents to keep in mind is that we actually have considerable control in terms of we do know how this virus is transmitted. So those messages that we've been telling people to stay home and when you're out to maintain physical distancing of six feet, of washing your hands frequently, of um, really taking care of each other. Because one of the things that I think we've all looked at maybe more theoretically in the past is that everybody's health is important. But now what's important is the recognition that your health depends on my health and my health yeah. depends on your health. And if we're all in this together, we have a shared vulnerability. But when we have a shared vulnerability, we also have a shared responsibility and a shared method for approaching this. Yeah, I think I think it seems like one of the 
one of the positive things that have come out of this is that people have it, that people's fundamental understanding of what public health means has kind of shifted. They actually understand the public part of it, not just the health part of it. That's exactly right. Because I think a lot of times when people would think public health, they think of the health department and the services that we provide. But when I think of public health, I think of more community health, if you will. Before we kind of sign off here one of the things we've been doing with these episodes is kind of having a kind of connective tissue from episode to episode and so we have a at the end we of each episode we have our guest kind of ask a question for the next guest um and so the, our last guest uh teddy kim who's a developer in the area he i guess without knowing it has asked you um why do you do what you do which is kind of a broad question but i think you you seem, it seems like you really know why you do what you do yeah, I, I do what I do, and I would distill it into one word that I think we don't use much in public health or in, in government, but that one word is love. Uh, love for the community, love for knowing that we are in a community and we're also at a time in our life where the work that we do can make a drastic difference for not just this generation, but the generations to come. But I would I would say the the one single word is is love. Yeah, and we can all use a little bit more of that right now. Yes. So I guess without knowing who the next guest is, what question would you like to ask them? I would want to know what is it that brings you joy. I like that. Thank you again for for taking the time to talk with me, Doctor Hearing. I know you you have don't have much time to spare right now, but I really appreciate it. Thank you. I very much appreciate being on. Take care, Alexandra.